to the Cult of Domesticity podcast, a podcast about history, true crime, and whatever life brings us. I'm Courtney, and every week I am joined by another fascinating person. Let's see what we're going to talk about this week. So this month's Patreon shoutouts goes to Jules and Strictly Homicide for joining the collective, as well as a thanks to our other devotees that are sticking around we have bonnie lee Landshark, murderific and obscura a true crime podcast thanks so much guys for contributing to keeping the podcast going and getting a bunch of extra content so if you want to be part of the collective i guess quote unquote officially and get extra episodes check out the patreon like these fine devotees Welcome back, devotees. This week we have Nikki T back for hey. some more. She <laughs> she decided she liked us and she came back for some more. I'm back. Uh, yes, you're back. I don't know if you had new episodes out since I haven't. We recorded last. I've been working on um, a cold case that I'm working with the family and. Um, there's like no information at all it's real sad and so i had to gather a lot of information so it'll be out probably next week and then i did had to do research for this show and then i'm gonna be on with heather two different episodes so i know i'm like (laughs) busy (laughs) yeah halloween is unexpectedly busy for most podcasters and no one like october because with halloween everyone does halloween episodes <laughs> no one does christmas episodes just halloween <laughs> yeah i i don't know that I, I probably won't do like a halloween episode i didn't have anything planned but october is my busiest month in my life <laughs> all jobs <laughs> all the jobs yeah <laughs> i mean whatever month i move tends to be busy just because, you know, craziness of figuring out where you're going to live and all that. This month's busy. I have to go up to Cleveland. I started a new part-time job and then just trying to stockpile as many episodes as I can <laughs> at a given point. So it'll be good. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We just flipped coins and it's my turn to go first. And I brought you another gem. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to start this calling them when... Nikki episodes or something. <laughs> Um, this time on American soil, so I don't know how how great that'll be. We're going to talk about Japanese internment during World War II. Oh, wow. (laughs) I told you I brought you a gem. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to start this off. If you want more information, I came across a great resource, which is a lot of primary sources and collecting oral histories called Densho, D-E-N-S-H-O. And it'll be in the show notes, as always, you know, I always include my sources in Chicago-style formatting. You're welcome. <laughs> so they actually document the testimonies of Japanese-Americans who were um, unjustly incarcerated during World War II before their memories are extinguished. They offer irreplaceable firsthand accounts coupled with historical images, teacher resources, and to explore the principles of democracy and promote equal justice for all. And that's their kind of mission statement. Huh. It's fantastic. Like... I I went down a deep, deep rabbit hole with that. So I was about to say I would fall into a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's amazing. They have a, like a nice overview with some. So if you're more of a video learner, they have videos, they have text, they have images, they have firsthand accounts. Uh, if you're a teacher and you want to teach this, 
amazing resources like lesson plans and all that um there's ways to support them seriously go check it out i yeah i fell in love (laughs) my mother-in-law is a history major and she works at the high school so i might have to share that link with her (laughs) we're not gonna start with the war we have to talk about kind of the mindset around asian americans in specifically the west coast but throughout the country before the war because america we don't always welcome immigrants (laughs) the real tagline right (laughs) the real tagline so most of this starts stemming from anti-asian prejudices in california specifically chinese so and this like it'll lead over to anti-japanese feelings generally anti-asian we get chinese immigration beginning around the time of the california gold rush so they're coming to help out with that um they're really into the big american economic boom at that point because their labor is needed and wanted they were cheap labor you know immigrants they're cheap they'll do the jobs we don't want to do and then we crap on them america (laughs) i'm gonna just point this out if someone writes me a review saying that i'm anti-american i am fully like a full-blooded American, I believe in this country, I have ancestors that have fought for this country, I can be critical of it. It's called a discussion and a democracy. Well, not only that, I mean, it's it's a podcast, like, for instance, true crime, you know, you, you're not going to talk about only the good stuff, but it's okay, I've been run through the ringer lately, too. <laughs> I, I apparently yeah. hate Arkansas, like, with a passion. I don't. <laughs> No, it's it's fine. <laughs> uh, I'm just throwing that out there because this, as most people know, this incident isn't exactly shining a lovely light on America. It's more of the complexities of the country. And I think that's what makes our country unique. And I like to look at those like little cracks yep, and the little blemishes because it really describes who we are as a country and why. Exactly. As white working men begin to compete with the Chinese um, around 1870s, which is when they're about 10% of California's population, they don't like them as competitors. This really starts growing after the completion of the Transcontinental uh, Union Central Pacific Railroad in 1869, which had brought over about 10,000 Chinese laborers. So, you know, the railroad's done, so now they need other jobs. And this is the railroad that connected east to west. So the the famous one where the, they did the golden spike, which seems stupid <laughs> to me. Gold's valuable. Like, let's not put it in a railroad spike. This is on uh, top of the fact that Chinese labor is cheap. And so this kind of reinforces the ideology of Asian inferior to Americans. And you get the racial prejudices. So you thought Americans were just judgmental against one race. Oh, God. I could find other things that would tell you differently. Anytime we add colors to things, it gets bad. Yep. So this gets institutionalized at both state and federal levels, <laughs> which includes a Chinese, specifically Chinese uh, immigration exclusion bill passed in 1882 by Congress. This foreshadows what's going to happen to the Japanese immigrants who start arriving as soon as this exclusion bill gets passed. So we see... Pretty much in the 1880s, the switch from Chinese immigration into Japanese immigration, which, if I remember correctly, they were not cons- Asian Americans were not considered citizens for a freakishly long time, which is really dumb. Wow, I'm really? Sorry. Like, even people born here weren't considered 
Americans, which is technically against natalist policies, but whatever. Before that rabbit hole gets very deep and very angry. <laughs> Just as someone who's like grandparents came over as like eastern europeans at a time when eastern europeans weren't welcomed it just bothers me deeply yep so these and if i'm mispronouncing japanese names i'm sorry my knowledge of asian languages is worse probably one of the worst translation ones i'm good at so (laughs) that i'm not good at so japanese immigrants were called isi which is a combination of the japanese words for one and generation. So then the next generation, so the first American-born ones are Nisi, and the third generation are Sansi. Um, and then, <laughs> I just love when you get down into the nitty-gritty. So the Nisi and the Sansi, who then were educated in Japan, are called Kibi. <laughs> Pretty sure none of these are said correctly, but I'm going <laughs> with it. So the first generation, or the Isi, mainly come from the Japanese countryside, and they would first arrive either in Hawaii or mainland on the western coast was really not a lot of money. About half of them became farmers, while the other half went to urban centers and worked in small commercial establishments, normally for themselves or other EC. So they would make, you know, like Chinatown or like Little Asia, like most immigrants do. And shortly after this immigration begins, anti-Japanese movements begin, (laughs) stemming from former specifically anti-Chinese, but other anti-Asian movements. You know, uh-huh. America. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> the anti-Japanese movement really became widespread around 1905, mainly increased immigration, and the Japanese defeated Russia in the side, what was it? Russo-Japanese war, which they, I mean, Russia did really bad. Let's not lie. It's part of the reason why the Romanovs fell, one of them, like, starting the, that domino effect. And it's really the first time Japan, as an Asian nation, or as these outdated terms, third world, na- third world nation or developing nation, defeated a European power. And Japan actually did a great job of industrializing. So, you know, there's issues in World War One with why they weren't recognize and all of that but they were fully a modern nation at this point mm-hmm. so them beating russia shouldn't have been a shock to anyone this is where europeans and specifically in america they viewed the ec and the japanese as threats so you see it getting formalized in anti-japanese organizations such as the asiatic exclusion league um, attempts to segregate schools because, you know, separate but equal and, you know, hate crimes yep. on individuals and businesses. Guys, tactics were the same. We, yeah. Ja- the Japanese government actually protests the treatment of its citizens and all these coming up for its citizens in the U.S. and wherever they were. Good on them. Good old TR, Teddy Roosevelt, attempts to negotiate a compromise to maintain their friendship, like the U.S.'s friendship with the Japanese Considering, if I remember correctly, technically, America opened up Japan to the West. By open up, I mean forcibly said, hey, bitches, let's trade. So, and I mean, that was in the 1850s. <laughs> Again, if I'm remembering correctly, my American history is a little rusty. And TR's plan was to convince the Fr- San Francisco school board. Yeah. Hippy dippy San Francisco <laughs> to revoke its segregationist order. And then restrained the California legislature from passing any more anti, specifically anti-Japanese legislation and worked out the gentleman's agreement with the Japanese government. There was heavy air quotes in that. 
pretty much Japan had a, agreed to limit emigration to the U.S., the con- specifically the continental U.S., because Hawaii and Alaska are not states until the 1850s, uh-huh. or the, sorry, the 1950s. They are the last states. To laborers who had already been in the United States before and to parents, wives, and children of laborers already there. So basically, you have had to already emigrate or you had to have a family member who had already emigrated, but like a very, like, the nuclear family. Yeah. Essentially. Then in 1913, so year before the First World War breaks out, California passes the Alien Land Law that prohibits the ownership of agricultural land by, quote, Aliens ineligible to citizenship, end quote. So, Asians, you know. Native Americans technically fell under that, too. There's a lot of people that fell under that. And feel free to get mad now. (laughs) Like I I told you last time, just grab your comfort drink, hug it deeply. We'll all get through this together. (laughs) So, this expands in the 1920s with Stronger Alien Land Act, which then prohibits leasing... And sharecropping. So you couldn't even lease out farmland to, like, get your start. So you really couldn't farm. These are based on the assumption that aliens, Asians are aliens, not able to be eligible for citizenship, which then formed a really narrow version of the naturalization statute, which had been rewritten after the 14th Amendment, a.k.a. the one that gives, like, you can't judge by, like, race, sex, gender gender now but you know basically gives african americans the right to vote which had said like pretty much eliminated naturalization of only white persons and like had made those of african descent aliens so you know the u.s has a little experience in this yep so this exclusion really intent of congress is legitimized by the supreme court yes the highest court in this land (laughs) in 1921 when takeo Okazawa was denied citizenship. So it's like really, it's a really awkward thing. But the Nisi, who were citizens by birth and therefore their parents would um, transfer their title to their children. So it's like, it's a weird, complicated citizen factor where now we kind of accept that, yes, if you're born here, you're a citizen here. Yeah. You know, we, and I, I should mention researching this, the comparisons that came up, I'm sure you're, you, everyone can confer with our president being trump at the the time of this recording what comparison came up i mean you already know i was doing that yeah what's that sound like this was just a coincidence it was the next one on my list did not plan this this is just what happened there's another immigration act in 1924 which then prohibits further japanese immigration all further Japanese immigration and really is bringing this huge generation gap between the EC and the Nisi. So basically all the first generation people, the gap is getting so separated because there can't be any more coming over. So you have to be born here. And then on top of that, there's growing anti-Japanese fear coming from economic factors because it's, you know, 1920, well, 1924, we're doing pretty great, but it's really... Many of these EC farmers were very successful at raising fruits and vegetables in, like, these soils that people didn't think were fertile. Mm-hmm. But Japan, I think, they had different techniques of farming. So would it work better in California? They could adapt it and figure out, like, what would be well. So, you know, envy. Economic envy. And then on top of it, like I mentioned, there's military fears with the Russo-Japanese War that had shown, you know, the Japanese are actually a first world power 
in their own right. And we really see this in why they become a major actor in World War II. And so this fear of Asian conquest, granted, Japan never really... Russia's a weird... Like, is it European or is it Asian? They're always asking that question. Did they really... Like, they tend to invade only Asian countries, so it's like American fears seem unjustified, but they called this the yellow peril. On top of, you know, the standard otherness, their kind of stereotypes of Asian populations really influences the events following um, Pearl Harbor. I think the best way to describe how Americans viewed the Japanese, and this I'm pretty sure it comes out after World War II, is uh, Mickey Rooney playing a Japanese man in Breakfast at Tiffany's. (sighs) If you haven't seen it, just look up a clip of it, because it should just make you mad on so many levels. One, what accent is it doing? Like, is he doing? Two, why is he in yellow face? And three, I don't understand why any of it's happening. <laughs> like, anyone who's seen it can vouch. Like, you're just like, what is happening? <laughs> you're going to have to share a clip on it, uh, of it on Facebook now. <laughs> yeah, I probably should. Oh, my God. It's just so... It's so bad. Like, it's not even funny how bad it is. So we're gonna, we're skipping through the First World War. We're going to come to the Second World War, which on the European front, by the time Pearl Harbor has happened, has already been going on for several years. The Asian front, not really involved. Like, my knowledge of the Pacific front is slightly less mm-hmm. than the European front. But that's because when I studied, I was a Europeanist, specifically British imperialist, historian, and my knowledge of Asia comes from the 18th century. I'm sorry. <laughs> In modern geopolitics, which isn't helpful for this. So we have the infamous event December 7th when, you know, the Japanese strike. They have kamikaze pilots bomb and destroy the U.S. base in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And this pretty much, if you don't know your World War II American entry into history... This is the kick in the ass that the U.S. gets to actually join the war. Because, I'm sorry, we've been pussyfooting around it for a while. <laughs> FDR was like, mm, we'll do the London lease policy. Like, here, Britain, we'll send you some weapons and stuff. And you just pay us back. It's cool. <laughs> like, we'll send them over to the Allies and stuff like that. I'm not kidding. It's There was a lot of pussyfooting around. Like, we would have entered the war, but this really just forced the U.S. into the war. So, that same day... Because probably they had already kind of had these lists. Yeah, because, you know, we need the lists of the bad people, right? Justice Department organized the rest of 3,000 people who it considered, quote unquote, dangerous enemy aliens. Around half of them were Japanese. We can assume that some were German and some were Italian. Those were the major Axis powers. For those of you who don't know, Allied powers were a lot of Europe, Russia. Um, China actually was, you you could say, was an allied power so and then the u.s and like canada pretty much all of the british commonwealth which is a lot of, covers a lot of people so the japanese americans who were arrested and com- included community leaders who were really involved in japanese organizations and religious groups so you know for those of you who are active listeners sounds a little familiar i'm not going to mention where we've heard it before but a lot of lot of places where we get rid of people there really wasn't a requirement to have evidence of actual subversive activities to be arrested. Yeah, no. On top of that, 
The bank accounts were frozen of all enemy aliens and at all accounts of American branches of Japanese banks were frozen. So nobody gets money. This paralyzes the Japanese American community who now does not have any money or financial assets and has no leadership. <sighs> so not great. No. And yeah, it's, it's, oh God, it's so bad. So, and around late January 1942, so uh, 1941 is Pearl Harbor, December, month later, the many of the Japanese who had been arrested were transferred to internment camps in Montana, New Mexico, and South Dakota, and their family had no idea where they were for weeks. God. Mm. Some were reunited with their families in relocation centers, uh, and many were going to remain there during the war. But this really whips up, you know, the hysteria and paranoia. It really doesn't help when the Secretary of the Navy, Frank Cox, blames Pearl Harbor on, quote, the most effective fifth column work that's come out of, of this war except in Norway, end quote. Which, that phrase just intrigues me because what's going on in Norway? But anyways, so he's basically saying the local military's lack of readiness um which was far greater than we probably realized at the time and it didn't really like they didn't really have the espionage they kind of this is the weird thing they kind of knew pearl harbor was going to happen but they didn't know where or when Uh they were kind of getting because the japanese were really smart on kind of going radio silent and any of the ships that were getting close enough were radio silent but they knew something was going to happen they just didn't know when and where yeah but you know, the head of the Navy, the secretary of the Navy, doesn't want people to lose faith in the Navy. So he basically was like, you know, these Japanese spies, <laughs> these Japanese, like, so you have yellow journalism, fake espionage. It's, yeah, there's no basis for any of this fifth column, like, extra people doing stuff. It just really feeds in this into this hysteria in which anyone who's been through, um, you know, like, major world events can know when you start scapegoating a t- an entire population mm-hmm. yeah it doesn't go well Mm-mm. i mean we've both lived through 9-11 mm-hmm. i'm sure we can remember like you see now people were talking about their own 9-11 happened on 9-11 but they were muslim americans so like their whole lives changed overnight because all of a sudden they were the scapegoats and people were like why did you do this and it's like they didn't do it Mm -mm. the military like the u.s military already knew the japanese was capable of these hit and run attacks which we would later call like kamikaze attacks and had already accepted that the japan couldn't invade the u.s it would take you know they're like a large-scale invasion of the u.s isn't really possible the u.s hasn't been invaded technically militarily invaded since the war of 1912 you know it's been a minute and they really realized that they couldn't invade japan so it's like a stalemate situation yeah because i mean we never invaded technically we've never invaded japan we couldn't do it so internment you ready for for this oh so ready (laughs) (laughs) i'm convinced do you like want to torture me now (laughs) <laughs> I didn't give you the worst one I've done so far. I didn't give you the Holodomor. That one was pretty bad. There's like people eating babies. Yeah. I'll pass. <laughs> yeah. So this is just concentration camps on US soil. You know, depending on how you count concentration camps, could be the second or the first. It just depends. <laughs> <laughs> Ten weeks after the attack, February 19, 1942. FDR signs Executive Order 
9066, which... Oh, I hate that it does this. Gives military leaders broad powers to round up and incarcerate, quote unquote, any or all persons, quote unquote. <sighs> Who could he mean? Oh, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyone, really, of Japanese ancestry, including U.S. citizens. So you know that you're born here, you're a citizen kind of stuff. So Congress was like, yeah, we like this. Let's go for it. So he has full support. However, he, there were politicians who stood against this. And I feel really bad that I did not know their names until I did this research. Colorado Governor Ralph Carr, who considered the order inhumane. Oh. And I know. He was faced with large and a hostile audience threatening violence to him. He said, quote, an American citizen of Japanese descent has the same rights as any other citizen. If you harm them, you must harm me first, end quote. And that, I mean, it killed his political career, but I was just like, that is amazingly brave. Yeah, for sure. Especially, I mean, he knew what it would do to his career, too. Sadly. <laughs> yeah. He's he's one of those people when, like, I, I always love this question when people go, I would never let the Holocaust, like, what happened to the Holocaust happen? And it's like, we let it happen here. And there were very few people who stood up. And it it's so difficult to stand against a group of people who are all saying the same thing. And it's hard to, like, not be silent. And he decided to not be silent. There's also um, a small group of churches that protested, as well as uh, civil rights activist e W.E.B. Du Bois and writer Pearl S. Buck, who petition like formed a petition, but really there was no momentum for this. Um, the current situation has a lot more momentum behind it. So that March, U.S. Army soldiers, yes, they used soldiers for this, knocked on doors and posted evacuation orders in targeted neighborhoods in California, Oregon, Washington, and Arizona using the data provided by the U.S. Census Office. <laughs> hmm. and look, what, like, look, what level is your rage? Like, is your cup of rage filleth over? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the standard thing. <laughs> you're at a are you at a picture of rage now it's ridiculous i just think it's bullshit that they use the census they're like yeah we're gonna use this yeah right like, then i i would just not fill it out no i mean that's the reason why there are people that are like i'm not filling that you know what i mean it mm -hmm. that's why you have the option to not answer so you could only bring what you could carry and were forced to dispose of anything else you own within weeks, maybe even days. Some people were forced to sell all their assets to scavengers at unimaginable, fi unimaginable financial losses, while others piled their possessions into improvised warehouses in family garages, leased their homes, or found caretakers for their properties. Many storefronts would be ransacked, many rents would go unpaid, and many caretakers would betray the family's trust, selling off or abandoning their belongings. So, you know, it's like, best case scenario, you trusted someone to look after your stuff. Yeah. And you came back and they had left it. Worst case scenario, all your stuff had been sold or, you know, everything was broken. And so this is where mm, it's sad and depressing gets ha happen. Each family was then assigned a number, which was to be written on tags that hung from luggage and people alike, uh, alike and defined by their new identity. So every family gets a number. Everyone should know where we've heard this before. I was about to say, kind of like that some people had an ar armband. <laughs> some people had a tattoo. <laughs> yes. Mm. And I think this is really like 
anyone who's ever heard George Takai, there's documentaries where he speaks about it. He was um, the st- one of the stars of Ch- Star Trek. He was in an internment camp, and he's an advocate. That's why he is so vocal against any form of it and keeping this knowledge alive. He's probably the best known advocate I've kn- I've heard of about this, and he's really like he very much is keep trying to keep the history alive and yeah. Um, he talks about it like how it's it's very it it makes you not feel human. Yeah. So where did everyone go? The military had efficiently um, set up temporary assembly centers that were at fair, fairgrounds, railroad tracks while they were building the relocation centers. So the largest one was the Santa Ana ra- racetrack, which held more than 18,000 people. Mm. And it was one of the several assembly centers where people were forced to live in horse stables. Oh. Again, these are U.S. citizens. So don't, if people get mad at me, don't No, it doesn't matter. Most of these people came over legally or were doing the right thing. And they were trying to do the best by their country and they're forced to live in horse stables after being forced to sell their homes or leave everything they've built. Kayoshi Katsumoto had been confined as a boy at the Tenafor racetrack in San Bruno, recounts walking around the stables with friends when they heard a cry. Quote, it was muddy, it stank to high heavens. We peeked inside and there was a woman sitting on a cot wailing her head off. They had whitewashed the walls, but you could see the horse manure and horsehair stuck to the walls. That memory has never left my mind. So they were forced to stay in these centers for months before they were moved, mostly by train, to 10 camps in the remote mountains, deserts, and other inland areas. I have a map of all the centers that I found that was really good. I'm sending you. So there are a lot of centers, um, mainly still in the Pacific Northwest, like inland from there. But yeah, so there weren't that many centers. Look, there's one in Arkansas, (laughs) too. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, so... There's Heartland Mountain in Wyoming. There's... It's trying to zoom and it changed my picture. There, yeah. So Heart Mountain's in Wyoming. Minidoka is in Idaho. True Tule Lake is on the border of California and Oregon. Um, Mansazar is in California, but closer to Nevada. We have Preston River on the Arizona side of the Colorado River. So the California-Arizona border. Mm-hmm. We have... Gila River, uh, Granada in Colorado, Jerome in Arkansas, Royer also in Arkansas. And there's a couple others, but those are like the big ones. Yeah. So, yeah. There, the map, it all share this as well. It, it has a relocation center and it has a scale to the peak population that was there and as well as assembly centers and other camp or detention center. So there was other options. We used to feel great. Um... I'm looking to see where the Jerome Relocation Center is. It looks like it's down. Yeah. So while you look that up, um, the government also produced a film at that time calling it uh, Mass Migration to Pioneer Communities, where I'm up pitching. That's quote on. There's a lot of air quotes happening to desert uh, desert lands full of opportunity, adding, quote, we are protecting ourselves without violating the principles of Christian decency, end quote. I'll just let you sit with that. <laughs> sit. Oh, feels great, doesn't it? 
So, a congressional commission had investi- investigated the incarcer- incarcerations later, had described it much differently, talking about the harsh conditions, harsh winters, unbearable hot and humid summers, where people were forced to live in uninsulated and hastily built tar paper barracks that were bleak and spartan. You get one room per family, and the camp was surrounded by barbed wire fences. You know, building community. <sighs> For Christian values. Yeah, those Christian values included military police manning watchtowers that had machine guns and searchlights. And if you were determined to be violating the boundaries, you got shot. Christian values. (laughs) (laughs) With the victory in the Battle of Midway by the U.S. in June 1942, really the fears of a Japanese attack on the mainland diminished it significantly. So basically... It, it was a very decisive battle where the, the tide of the Pacific front turns in the favor of the U.S. It's just, it seems more of a win, not an if. Mm-hmm. But remember those nice camps we built, those didn't close. While some Japanese Americans who were determined loyal were allowed to leave, most were forced to stay against their will, these months turning into years. In case you're wondering how long it took for them to get out of there, you want to guess how many babies were born in that period? Oh, well, I mean, they don't have any kind of birth control, so. You don't have a lot else to do. 300. 5,000. Holy More than 5, shit. 000. Wow. What? Yes. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. I mean, like, conceived and then born in in the camps, right? So I assume the condition it's of It's just known that they were born in detention. Okay. So it could have been the first camps or the second camp. We don't, like, whenever they conceived. Like conceived, it wasn't probably kept track of, but they were born in detention. Around two thousand people died. So, and this includes um, Torizako Sekawaki in the Mans- Mansonar camp, who was sixty-seven, and his grandson Walter Yashisharu Sekawaki said. Quote, he passed away, I think, more or less of a broken heart. He hadn't done anything wrong, end quote. So some of these people just were like, they had, you know, you have an immigrant stream and they put everything into it. And then the their adoptive country locks them up. Some Japanese Americans did resist, such as Fred Korematsu, who refused to comply with the order and remained in San Ladrillo, California. And after... The military declared it, a, the army declared it a military area, so it means it's completely off limits to, the army declared the area he was living in a military area, so it's off limits to all people of Japanese ancestry, really because they thought they were going to start sabotaging shit. Korematsu was then convicted of ignoring an exclusion order, and he went all the way up to the Supreme Court. He goes, nah, I'm an American citizen. <laughs> we have Justice Frank Murphy that wrote... Treating Japanese, uh, those of Japanese descent differently from people of Italian or German descent whose ancestral nations were also at war with the U.S. was the legaliz- quote, legalization of racism, end quote, which I like that, you know? The court voted six to three to uphold the decision, agreeing with the government that, you know, it's justifiable military actions. I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked. <laughs> You're not shocked at it? You want to you get a little more mad? I'll just add another cup for your, your picture of rage at this point. There was Navy intelligence that had found Japanese Americans posed no military threat, therefore showed no evidence of being disloyal, spies, signaling submarines, 
as the government's lawyers argued in that case. So the justices didn't know that at the time. Oh, wow. <laughs> How you feel? I just don't understand it. Like, why? <laughs> the facade. <sighs> I know, the I know, facade. I know. We gotta keep, we gotta keep Uncle Sam looking nice. Keep it on looking tight. Mm. No one can know his mascara smears like everyone else's. Never thinking um, about how it's going to look afterwards. They never want to think ahead of the time. You know? How's this going to look in our know. grandchildren's history books? Yes. Um, <sighs> so, in 2011, the U.S. government acknowledged that the reason why the justices didn't know this information because the U.S. Solicitor General had deliberately hidden that intelligence report from them, which I'm not sure if it is relevant at that point is a Brady violation, if I remember correctly from the Getting Off podcast. <laughs> that seems highly illegal. Um, don't worry, that decision had the Supreme Court went back and was like, oh, yeah. No, we're going to repudiate that. So we're going to take away that decision. So he's good now. <sighs> to that, just, uh, Chief Justice John G. Roberts Jr. wrote, quote, that forcing U.S. citizens into concentration camps slowly and explicitly on the basis of race is objectively unlawful and outside the scopes of the of presidential authority. Unquote. This was 13 years after Fred Korematsu had actually passed away. So he never got justified in the eyes of law. Oh, yeah. That's sad. Bringing that up to modern day, Robert's condemnation of the Supreme Court's decision actually had been used as recently as this year when the court upheld Donald Trump's ban. Probably because they said that they were not U.S. citizens. Yeah. So, like, Roberts can at one point condemn the earlier decisions, but they can't see how it's the parallels. (sighs) But again... I don't know U.S. law that intensely. <laughs> yeah, well. I'm just saying it from a historical standpoint. I know we're not supposed to project on, but I can just point out how we view past decisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on top of that, we're still, like, back into the 1940s. America's still fighting a war. And, hey, you know what wars need? People. So... They decided to get a unit completely made up of Japanese Americans. This would be the 100th Infantry Battalion, but it was sent to Europe. They asked for volunteers of a mostly a second mostly Japanese unit. This would be the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. So they're still fighting for their country as they're interned. Um, I really couldn't find information on Hawaii in this case, but I remember Hawaii's system was even more insane, which would have to be kind of its own episode. Because <laughs> it was a real... It's a really crazy situation from stuff I read read about here and there. Of the 442nd combat uh, re- Regimental Combat Team, more than 10,000 Japanese Americans in Hawaii call, answered the call for... 1,500 volunteers. So they're they're going to fight for the country they're, that's treating... Oh. <laughs> they're blue-blooded Americans, and you know, it's crazy, but you think if... It's like uh, African-Americans fighting in the Civil War. They feel like if they fight for their country, they can be viewed as equal. Yeah. I mean, African-American soldiers were doing the same thing in World War II, and they would come back and be treated like crap. Yeah, nothing changed. <sighs> The meter moves back and forth. We move it forward and moves back a little yep. bit. Yep. So on top of it, they're still 
Japanese Americans really being frustrated at the camps for losing their fundamental rights as citizens. You have several hundred taking stands against like against serving until their families were free. So they're like, we're happy to serve, but you have to like send us home. Like we can't have our families in these camps. Yeah. Um, well, others saw a chance of listing to prove their loyalty. And so you have about a thousand men from the camps enlisting. U.S. Uh, Senator Daniel Inuawi, he volunteered for the 40, 442nd from Hawaii, recalls later, and this is from a History Channel documentary, quote, of all of us, in addition to fighting the enemy, had a goal to redeem our name to and to uphold our honor. Failure was almost impossible. You had to succeed, end quote. So it's like those of you who have studied Japanese culture, it's a very honor-based society. So you've insulted the honor of the all of these Japanese Americans, and they're trying to prove that no, we are Americans. We have the honor of Americans. Yeah, they don't, you know, they don't have the chance of failure. They actually did very well on the European front. They were in seven major campaigns, and the four hundred forty second suffered nine thousand four hundred eighty six casualties, including six hundred deaths. The unit received seven distinguished unit citations, uh, eight thousand. 143 individual decorations, including more than 3,600 Purple Hearts, it would become the most decorated co- combat unit for its size in U.S. history. Oh. So it shows you that this fear that we have, this all this fear-mongering that always comes up when we have, like, we perceive this threat, it's not justified. Mm-mm. It really isn't justified. Well, the 100th became known as the Purple Heart Battalion, and it would merge with the 442nd on June 15th, 1944. So we, we just see, like, there's me so much. <laughs> this combined unit, it just bothers me so much because they, like, they fought and died for their country. Exactly. And their country has their families in concentration camps. And I'm they, sorry, that's what they were. And they didn't just go over there and, you know, like, say, you know, just, they, like, fought hard. I mean, but they were trying to prove something. Oh, that's so sad. And my thought would be, okay, you could have said at the beginning of the war, hey, if you're Japanese, we're not going to make you fight over there. Mm-hmm. And if you're German, we're not going to make you fight over Like, the same thing could have worked. Just have, send them to the different fronts. They didn't have to put them in concentration camps. I'm sure they would have gladly volunteered. Yeah. So, this combined unit would fight in several key battles. Mount Belvedere in Italy, Luciana, and Livorno. And they would also endure heavy casualties in order to cross the Arno River, which is towards the, um, the top of Italy, and continuing to hemorrhage losses, rescuing a lost battalion of the 200 Texans caught behind enemy lines at the Vosges Mountains in France. They're they're not only just fighting to gain territory, they're saving others yeah. as well. President Harry Truman actually greeted them after the war in Washington, D.C., saying, quote, you fought not only the enemy, but you fought prejudice, and you won, end quote. But, <laughs> <laughs> like I said, two steps forward, one step back. We know you're not the enemy, but that... <laughs> they, would, they would still have to endure anger, racial slurs, discrimination, and there was never any evidence of disloyalty or wrongdoing by any American of Japanese descent during the war. Mm-hmm. And just hurts so much on the inside. So, war's over. Everyone gets to go home, right? You would think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, we're assuming so much of our country. 
<laughs> we have about one third of those who are deemed quote unquote loyal left in the camps by the end of 1944 and they were not allowed to return to the west coast until 1945 i could see like hey we're gonna start staggering letting people go so it's not like a giant rush yeah but i don't think that's what they had in mind we are assuming way too much the first returners to the coast often received a rude reception um, from those who really didn't like that they were back because they had left in 1942 it's 44 45 but as soon as the war ended most of the camps had been closed by the end of 1945 really with the exception of Tulu Lake. Hmm. You go, oh, they're probably like, you know, here, we take you out here, let's take you back. No, they were forcibly evicted from the camps and sent back to where they had uh, come from over three years earlier. <sighs> so, you- <laughs> yeah, isn't it great? You're like, we're just going to throw you. Your your house should still be there. Your money. Everything's. Oh, you, you sold your house and everything in it? <laughs> I'm sure you'll find. They had to start over and reestablish these like communities. And if you think about it, some of these communities had been there for about 50 years. Yeah. You took them out. And if there's like, especially like California in during the Great Depression, a lot of people moved out there. Anyone who's read or watched Grapes of Wrath knows that. Those who had been outside the West Coast contemplating going back to their communities, because remember... Yes, the majority of the population is on the West Coast, but there's Japanese Americans, you know, in all the bigger cities and yeah. all around. So they, you know, they were debating, do we go there? We go back. Many just stayed and built, like, made new communities. They didn't. Like where the camps were? Like where they oh, were? Oh, I think, I think probably in some of the cities, probably like in the same state or something like that. I doubt, I couldn't really find evidence that the American government sent them back. They might have been like, here's a train ticket, figure it out. Yeah. That just feels, I don't know, it just feels more American that way. Yep. So those who did return to the coast found their neighborhoods in very different condition. Pre-war little Tokyos were gone as African Americans and other ethnic minorities had settled in them. Because again, remember, there was the Dust Bowl going on before this. There was the Great Depression. There were more jobs in certain areas, so they would go to those areas. And hey, empty housing. Yep. Uh, Japanese Americans who did go back had really stiff competition for job and housing. The rural areas, you had to Remember, they lost their farms or had sold their farms and have to start over as labor. And, you know, that popular image of Japanese Americans had really shifted after the war. Think Mickey Rooney and Breakfast at Tiffany's. I think that's in the 60s, if I remember correctly. (laughs) Love that movie. That part's really fucked up. Well, many Americans actually probably pretty quickly realized that this wartime incarceration had been a mistake. And... You know, you have, you know, you have the heroism of, like, the Japanese Americans and their allies and all of that. And so you think this would help it through. And it did, in a sense, it really helped turn back racist legislation, such as, like, the alien land laws and ban on easy naturalization. So now you can become a citizen. And this is, I didn't really realize this. This is where they become the model minority. Oh. It's. It's weird that that's where it stems from is like, hey, we really fucked, like, as a country, the U.S. really fucked up. So we're going to, like, we're going to let you become, like, we've proved you're very brave. You're very loyal. So we're going to let you become citizens. Oh, you're very, like, a good, okay. So you're going to be our model minority. And I think the term now is, like, it's weird when you look at U.S. immigration patterns is because there's the us, like, it's the 
like who's the other it's like how close you are to actually being quote-unquote white and the irish weren't considered white southern europeans weren't considered white japanese weren't considered like so it's just so funny to see how like that definition broadens i guess to the acceptable like immigrants and i just think it's weird that unfortunately that's what it took yeah right Mm -hmm. so in 1945 the u.s or the sorry the los angeles herald ran a front page photo of mary masusada and her parents, who were one of the first people to return back to their home. It was taken on December 8th, four years to the day after the U.S. declared war on Japan. And it has Army General Joseph Stitwell saluting Mary and her family. He pinned a distinguished service cross on Mary in honor of her brother, Staff Sergeant Kazuko Mazuda, who had actually died fighting in the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. She also had two other brothers who served in the army who were there to witness the moment along with others, including a young actor named Ronald Reagan. I'm not shitting you. <laughs> so you see, like, there's there's symbols of it, apologies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, the, like, there was a lot of silence about the traumas of incarceration and, you know, the, the communities needed to deal with this trauma in their own ways. So in the 19... 19- Inspired by the 1960s social movements, a younger Japanese-American generation began to press for a true reckoning of the, the wartime experiences and eventually reparations for their incarceration. Because that's how they viewed it, and it's, I think it's valid. When there's, when there's machine guns pointed at you, that's incarceration. Yeah. This would be known as the redress movement. It really took off in the 1970s, and it would lead to the Civil Lib- the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, and then you get a presidential apology with- from, guess who, Mr. Reagan. <laughs> and detainees would receive $20,000. $20,000. In the 1980s. Yeah, they had to live with horse shit, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, Let's that's see, just yeah. horrible. Ugh. Um... U.S. inflation calculator. There we go. We'll do 1988. So it would be about $44,000 today. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's great, no, I but know. I mean for the yeah, U.S. For sure. to admit it's wrong that quickly and give you money. For sure. Everyone knows how hard it is to get the U.S. government to give you money. Or admit they're wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. As well, this is when... Uh, gov- information that the federal government had consciously kept information about the military necessity of mass removals from the Supreme Court, which gets convictions overturned. Also, this is where we see Japanese Americans making their experiences better known um, in order to prevent governmental abuses again. They're very active now. We see with um, the camps on the border mm-hmm. because they know what it's like to be in those camps. And when it's not like, I'm sorry, no matter what, it's not fun. No, it's just not humane at all. No matter what, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In in 1988, when the restitution goes through, there were 60,000 people who had been al- alive, still alive, who had been incarcerated. President Reagan said, quote, no payment can make up for those lost years. Uh, end quote, and discussing that the people who'd been put into the camps based solely on race was a mistake and a grave wrong. So people who say, you know, good old Ronnie wouldn't approve of it. Ah, uh, sorry, Ronnie would. <laughs> Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie says uh, camps are bad. Some modern day like retellings, and a lot of them, as we're getting more, we're losing more and more of these stories as survivors have passed away. You see 
their children talking about it. And because remember, 5,000 kids were born there. There were a lot of kids in these camps. Yeah. Tunzo Jake Ohara, who's 89, discusses that his father has actually had never really recovered from the struggle to rebuild his life and the shame of having been considered disloyal. Quote, he had a mental breakdown and would walk along way around so he didn't have to see anyone he knew end quote so it's like you just see like this deep-seated shame it's not mentally healthy and then it affects your physical health yeah satsuki inara who was actually one of those children born in captivity is now a trauma therapist seeking uh specializing in the japanese american experience really talking about how the emotional cost of being interned had never really been estimated any like any discussion of it is always too low because they don't really talk about it quote the public sees it as relocation the language has been modified to look like the government took care of us but it was an arrest i am seeing people who are young adults when they were incarcerated who now in old age are trying to make sense of what happened end quote so like really you don't know what's going on you're just told oh you have to go here you have to like and you're no nothing is ever really explained to you except for in really inflamed terms and so you just want to do it so you're not in trouble and it's horrible and of course, you know, God. Oh, I said it's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> On top of it, because of the language that the government used, it's still like it's heavily debated. You know, you have assembly centers mm-hmm. um, before being sent to relocation centers. It's like, OK, you have temporary detention centers to incarceration camps or concentration camps where you're forced to live for years. Like, that's why language is so important because it can really change the meaning of things. Oh, yeah. In 1946, the U.S. Secretary of the Interior, Harold Ike, said, quote, we gave fancy names of the relocation centers to these Dust Bowl, but they were concentration camps nonetheless, end quote. So literally, after they closed, they were called concentration camps. Yeah. And they're like, oops, sorry. Like everyone's now like, yeah. oh, sorry. We fucked up. On top of that, the removal of identity is being basically giving a number. It's humiliating. It's like loses your identity. It feels like your country is not your country. Um, Inara, who still has the tag that identifies her uh, family, states, quote, significant memories often reported to having to place the tags on their outerwear on the day they were moved from their homes, end quote. So, you know, it's very much like or similar to having to wear the yellow ribbon or the yellow armband or having the tattoos. It's very much a visible sign that you are the other. And that's not fair. No, not at all. So I was going to do an example of Seattle because they Mm -hmm. were actually did a piece recently. I'll share the article on Patreon about seattle and the like not even the internment but the people coming back mm-hmm. so resettlement so did you learn something wow. besides just r- full rage <laughs> no i did i did um i didn't realize that's, i should also mention that's a very very brief there's i have several books and stuff like that i'm sure that's very brief i coverage. bet oh i bet i i didn't realize that was going on though i did learn a lot <laughs> Um, yeah, like Sad. I said, too many similarities to there are similar things happening at the time. There's similar things happening now. Um, if you're interested in oral histories and stuff, check out uh, the initial. Uh, I'll um, try to share it more commonly like I did with the oral histories from the Holodomor. I think these stories just need to be told and hear it from the survivors accounts. Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, I'm sorry. I keep bringing you these really heavy ones. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> 
it's really it's really something people don't realize sometimes like for podcasters it's really hard like when you're supposed to be semi-comical to make jokes yeah about things like this and you're just most of it's just gallows humor which doesn't always translate well to people like some people's humor Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. we can't do anything right though so <laughs> we're women podcasters we have to fight a lot against a lot of things <laughs> do you want to tell everyone where to find you yes so uh you can find me on itunes uh spreaker google play spotify Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find Strictly Homicide Podcasts. Um, we have Facebook, a Facebook group, Twitter, Instagram. Just do a search for Strictly Homicide Podcasts. I made it easy. <laughs> yeah, yours is a lot easier than mine. You'll be back next week to tell me about a murder. And I'm not talking about Arkansas. I know. I told you you could not do Arkansas, and you're like, ooh, I haven't <laughs> done that in a while. Coincidentally, it's California. <laughs> we're staying on the west coast guys okay we'll see you guys next week bye bye press up are you getting sick and tired of hearing about ted bundy maura murray the golden state killer west memphis three check out strictly homicide podcast a true crime show that discusses cases out of the natural state and even though it's arkansas We won't be covering the West Memphis Three or the Boys on the Track anytime soon. So check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Podcoin, or basically wherever you listen to all your favorite shows. You can also find us on all social media platforms. And as Mr. T would say, Pity the fool that doesn't listen to Strictly Homicide. Hi, we're Cutting Class Podcast. Are you interested in skinny dipping with Mao Zedong? How about listening to sexy and suicidal subliminal messages? Maybe destroying an entire city with flaming birds. Or how about having a bowl of anti-pornography cereal? We're two high school history teachers that like to cover the lesser known stories of American and world history. You can check us out on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts or cuttingclasspodcast.com. Lots of domesticity. We're available on all podcatchers. Remember to rate, review, subscribe to help spread the word or just force other people to listen to it. Our Facebook and Twitter are at Domestic Podcast and our Instagram is at The Cult of Domesticity. We also have podcast merch at Threadless. Uh, as well, if you want to support us financially or show some appreciation, we have a PayPal tip jar and a Patreon, which has some pretty great perks. Any topic suggestions, feel free to email us at domesticpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to stay domestic and cult-free.